You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hi, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. A lot of big news to discuss. A major court ruling that authorizes the beginning of discovery into the Clinton email and Benghazi scandals. And on top of that, we have the grounding of Air Pelosi by President Trump. We'll talk about that and Judicial Watch's extensive litigation and investigations into the use of military travel by Speaker Pelosi the first time she was Speaker. You'll be astounded about uh, what we found. And plus, there's new information about the corruption behind the effort to spy on the Trump team by the Obama gang at the Justice Department and the FBI. It comes from testimony that Bruce Hoare gave to Congress. I'll give you, I'll give you some details there and uh, what ought to happen next, in my view. But first up is the big ruling by U.S. District Court Judge Royce Lamberth. And I've told you recently about Judge Lamberth's rulings that first authorized that we can take discovery into the Clinton email issues. And in that decision uh, last month, he said, come up with a plan and I'll approve the plan or, you know, a plan that I can approve uh, to uh, cover the discovery that I'm authorizing you to engage in. (coughs) Excuse me. Then, of course, we come up with the plan. The Justice Department and the State Department both oppose. The Justice Department represents the State Department in our Freedom of Information Act litigation, and they oppose our discovery plan. Now, go back in, going back to where this, this, the, this uh, lawsuit began, it's about the Benghazi talking points and any, any Clinton emails on it. And needless to say, we were given the runaround uh, by the Justice Department and State Department about the existence of the Clinton emails. In fact, it was this lawsuit that forced the disclosure of the Clinton email system to the courts and to the American people. So the court's very interested to know whether it was hoodwinked, whether the Clinton email system was designed to thwart the Freedom of Information Act, and uh, whether or not all the documents that could have been found were found uh, in response to Judicial Watch's lawful document request about the Benghazi talking points. Now, the talking points that I'm referencing are the talking points used by then-Obama UN Ambassador Susan Rice uh, to go on five Sunday morning talk shows shortly after the Benghazi terrorist attack in September of 2012, uh, and those talking points were lies. They were uh, falsely telling the American people uh, that a spontaneous demonstration caused in, in response to an Internet video led to uh, the killings of those four Americans in Benghazi that day, when in fact it was an organized terrorist attack uh, organized by al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda allies in Benghazi. They didn't want that to come out before the election, so they lied to us about the murder of four Americans in a terrorist attack. That's President Obama, Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, et cetera. So um, we're we're very interested in that. We exposed a lot of the details about that. Much of what we know about the Benghazi scandal is because of Judicial Watch's work, and that led in part to the disclosure of the Clinton emails. So the judge granted us discovery, and this week, he authorized the discovery plan, and in doing so, he cast aside most of the Justice Department and uh, State Department's objections. You know, if you want to know why President Trump might be frustrated from time to time, because he's sitting there in the White House, 
he's no fan of Hillary Clinton. He wants the truth in Benghazi. He wants accountability. And his Justice Department and State Department are opposing our efforts in that regard. And I guarantee you he's being told by his lawyers, don't intervene. You can't call the Justice Department and tell, tell them to give Judicial Watch the documents or just disclose the documents on your own. So it's up to the Judicial, to the judicial Watch to do this work. And so the judge's ruling, um, which was issued, it's a 16-page ruling. It's, here it is. It was issued on uh, January 15th, so that was Tuesday this week, I think. When this case began, Judicial Watch sought to verify the State Department's search for records uh, from former Secretary Hillary Clinton and her aides concerning the talking points former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice used to respond to the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi. Libya. But the case has since expanded to question the motives behind Clinton's private emails use while secretary and behind the government's conduct in this litigation. Last month, this court ordered the parties to meet and confer to plan discovery. As I pointed out, that didn't work out all that well. Judicial Watch submitted a proposal plan. The government responded and countered with its proposal, which was much more narrow, allowed us access to two witnesses and didn't want to answer any other questions on Benghazi. A judicial Watch replied, and this memorandum and order maps the path forward. Discovery shall be limited to three issues. Whether Clinton intentionally attempted to evade FOIA by using a private email while Secretary of State, whether State's efforts to settle this case in late 2014 and early 2015 amounted to bad faith, and whether State adequately searched for records responsive to Judicial Watch's FOIA request. Um, the party shall complete discovery within 120 days, so that would be May 15th, uh, unless they seek additional time. The court will hold a post-discovery hearing to ascertain the adequacy of state searches to determine if Judicial Watch needs to depose additional witnesses, including Hillary Clinton and her former chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, and to schedule dispositive motions. So, what did the judge authorize us to do? He authorized us to seek the testimony and gain the testimony of at least seven uh, top State Department and Clinton aides. And he also ordered us or allowed us to send interrogatory questions. These are written questions that have to be responded to in writing under oath to Susan Rice and Ben Rhodes. And now who is Susan Rice? You already know, the former U.N. ambassador. Ben Rhodes is the national security official in the Obama White House who helped create the talking points. And, of course, the, as I pointed out, Justice Department and State didn't want any of that to happen. We initially wanted to question them in person. The court said, no, you can send them write written questions. And this is the court's response to the justice, this State Department's and this Justice Department's efforts to stonewall us and cover up on Benghazi. Yet Rice's talking points and State's understanding of the attack play an, unavoidable central an unavoidably central role in this case. Information about the points' development and content, as well as their discussion and dissemination, before and after Rice's appearances on the Sunday morning talk shows, could reveal unsearched relevant records. State's roles, role in the points' content and development could shed light on Clinton's motives for shielding her emails from FOIA requesters, Judicial Watch, or, or on State's reluctance to search her emails. So uh, this is a major development that we're going to be able to ask questions. And, you know, and we, we don't, we're not going to be able to conduct a fishing expedition. We've got to keep the questions focused but thorough. And 
we've got a court order to follow, but these are questions that no one else was willing to ask or pursue and that Judicial Watch is pursuing over the objections of the deep state. So it's a great development on behalf of the rule of law, accountability and transparency in government, this court ruling. And in addition to these written questions, witnesses will also have to be questioned in person under oath by Judicial Watch. And these witnesses include Eric Boswell. Eric Boswell was a former Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security who warned Hillary Clinton about her BlackBerry use. And their BlackBerry was the way that she communicated or accessed her secret email system. And Mrs. Clinton talked to him about it. So we want to question him about that. Government didn't want us to do that. We get to depose him according to the court. Justin Cooper, the Clinton Foundation employee who created the ClintonEmail.com server. So in its proposal, this is the court's uh, wording, Judicial Watch noted Cooper's prior congressional testimony appears to contradict portions of the testimony provided to Judicial Watch by Yuma Abedin in the case before Judge Sullivan, who's another judge who allowed Judicial Watch some discovery in this case in 2016. Cooper repeatedly told Congress that Abedin helped set up the Clinton's private server. Uh, examining um, Abedin testified under oath she did not know about the server until later. So who is telling the truth? We get to ask Cooper questions about that. Clarence Fenney, who is the former Deputy Director of State's Executive Secretariat staff. An Executive Secretariat is the, uh, the part of the State Department that provides support uh, for the Secretary of State, essentially the Secretary of State's executive staff. This case questions uh, hinge on what specific state employees knew and when they knew it as the principal advisor and records management expert responsible for controlling Clinton's official correspondence and records, Finney's knowledge is particularly relevant. This other witness is really big, Heather Samuelson the former State Department senior advisor who helped facilitate state's receipt of Clinton's emails. This case turns on what specific government employees knew when, knew and when they knew it. So we, be able, so we should be able to depose Samuelson according to the court. And of course, Heather Samuelson was also Hillary Clinton's private lawyer who was involved in the uh, destruction of those 33,000 emails. So we'll be, I think, asking, uh, the lawyers ask the question in the end, I just watch. Uh, we'll be asking questions. You can be sure about that. So this is a major victory for accountability. So this, this discovery will take place, as I say, over the next four months. And so um, these are the witnesses initially the court allowed us to question. And as, and as the court notes, he may consider additional witnesses, such as Hillary Clinton later. Uh, we'll have to make the case to him if we do want to speak to her, which I suspect we might want to. And now uh, the government came back almost immediately after the court's ruling and said, there's a government shutdown, we can't do discovery. And uh, you know, the State Department at the time was largely shut down, so there's not much we could have said to say uh, to the court, hey, you've got to force the State Department to come to work to do this discovery. But it ha so happened that President Trump ordered much of the State Department back to work this week. Uh, so some of this discovery will take place, and it's already taken place because we sent out material pursuant to the court's orders earlier this week. Because in addition to the sort of uh, uh, in-person discovery where we're taking depositions, we get to serve document requests uh, about who knew what and when about the Clinton email issue, uh, take depositions potentially about uh, the... Clinton email issue from State Department, other rep other State Department representatives, 
and obviously there are other interrogatories that we'll be able to serve on the State Department about the Clinton email and related Benghazi issue. But isn't it remarkable that for all the noise about what Clinton, Clinton did during the presidential campaign with the Clinton emails, that there's been no follow-up by the Justice Department, no follow-up by the State Department, no follow-up by, the, by, the, uh, uh, by Congress. Now, Congress has looked into a little bit into the handling of the Clinton email system and the cover-up of, the, uh, in the, uh, of her misconduct by the, the Obama Justice Department and the FBI, you know, the James Comey uh, uh, protection racket that he ran to help Hillary Clinton. But uh, no one's followed up on key questions about the Clinton emails. Where are they? How are they deleted? Where are, what's going on? Why haven't they done anything on that? Well, Judicial Watch is doing that now. And it's, and it's disappointing, I'm sure, to many, many Americans that the Justice Department is still protecting Hillary Clinton. The State Department was still protecting Hillary Clinton. Uh, but this is why you have groups like Judicial Watch, because we're independent of politics. We're not run by the deep state. Uh, we're not, um, we don't run for the hills like many members of Congress do when anything, anything controversial comes up, and certainly when anything related to Hillary Clinton comes up. So Judicial Watch, once again, is providing a key leadership role uh, for, as I said, government accountability, transparency, integrity, and the rule of law. And uh, Hillary Clinton is uh, going to, uh, uh, or her, her actions are going to be central to this discovery uh, that will be taking place over the next four months. Now, it may take five months or six months, uh, depending on what happens if witnesses fight or the government shutdown goes on too long and we may have to uh, delay discovery a little bit till the government gets back to full operations. Uh, but this is remarkable, isn't it? It's just great news. And I thank you, our supporters out there, who help us do this. You know, our lawyers who are working hard on this uh, issue can't do it without your support. Uh, you know, as we try to manage this here at Judicial Watch, uh, we, we need the resources to be able to do that and, and take on the government, and you help us do that. So I, I want to thank you for that. And so I'll keep you updated as this discovery progresses, and you can obviously watch these updates here. Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, follow my Twitter feed at, at Tom Fitton, and of course we've got at Judicial Watch, and then we've got our Facebook feed uh, on Judicial Watch, uh, Facebook and, and um, wherever else that we're supposed to be. Where else are we supposed to be? Instagram? Are there any other social media platforms I'm missing? Probably not, but, uh, but you can track us because we try to tell people what we're doing as we're doing it and tell you what we find as we find it. Now, other big news this week uh, is Nancy Pelosi and the, and the battle between uh, Nancy Pelosi and the President of the United States. So Nancy Pelosi sent a letter to President Trump earlier this week suggesting it wouldn't be safe for him to testify or present his uh, State of the Union and that he should consider postponing it. Many people rightly interpreted that as a, as a uh, you're not invited anymore letter to give a State of the Union to a joint session of Congress. Uh, because the president can't just show up at the House. He has to be invited. So uh, yesterday, or uh, the, Nancy Pelosi and many other members and were going to go on a CODEL, which is short for a congressional delegation. The Washington word for it is CODEL, to Afghanistan via Brussels. 
And the president sent a letter to Nancy Pelosi yesterday, uh, essentially canceling the trip while the Pelosi and her colleagues were on en route to Andrews Air Force Base to get on the military plane that would bring them over. And so that caused, you might imagine, a lot of uh, excitement here in Washington, D.C. What it reminded me of the fact that Judicial Watch is taking the lead, not only in exposing Nancy Pelosi's abuse of military travel, uh, but generally the abuse of military travel by all of Congress through these congressional delegations, which is a uh, these codels, which are just junkets paid for out of your back pocket, out of your tax dollars. So uh, it was 10 years ago, believe it or not, it was 10 years ago that we were exposing uh, Nancy Pelosi's abuse of military travel. There, you know, there was only one scandal that I can recall that Nancy Pelosi had during her first speakership, and that was the problem she had with contending with the uh, publicity caused by Judicial Watch's investigations and litigation exposing her abuse of military travel. She was taking military planes uh, back and forth to her district and had some requests that were over the top and abusive. We exposed that. Uh, and then there were all sorts of other things going on that I'll get into. And that was 10 years ago. I was, now I'm 50, I was 40 years old when I was talking about this last. And now it's back in the news again, thanks to President Trump. So here's some of the material that we uncovered um, about Nancy Pelosi's travel from 10 years ago. And it's still relevant today because she's back in power again as Speaker of the House of Representatives. In response to a series of requests for military aircraft, one def- this is a press release dated March 10th, 2009, exactly, almost exactly 10 years ago. In response to a series of requests for military aircraft, one defense, and these are documents we uncovered through litigation in our usual FOIA process, uh, one Defense Department official wrote, any chance of politely querying Pelosi's team if they really intend to do all of these or are they just picking every weekend? There's no need to block every weekend just in case. The email also notes that Pelosi's office has a history of canceling many of their past requests. So they were demanding military travel, and which caused preparation to take place for that to happen, and then canceling it. Now, you may not know this, but there's an entire wing of the Air Force, and it's part of the wing that supports the President's travel, Air Force One and the, and, and, uh, and the support that probably we don't know about because it's classified that takes place whenever the President travels. And we've exposed the cost of Air Force One of both Barack Obama and President Trump. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's an entire wing that supports VIP travel, not just for the President, who's commander-in-chief, but for senior government officials and members of Congress when they go abroad. Now, I don't necessarily begrudge uh, a congressional delegation going into, um, I don't know, a a war zone like Afghanistan and um, them having a military plane take them in. But on the other hand, you know, these military planes aren't the military planes you think they might be. They're not, you may have seen on the movies or if you've served, more importantly, those of you, you know that military transport can be pretty threadbare. You know, you go in these big planes, you're sitting on jump seats along the fuselage, and uh, it's not exactly comfortable. 
Well, the military has an entire wing that's just essentially military versions of uh, commercial aircraft, except they're all first, imagine a big first class, a big commercial aircraft you typically take, but all first class or business class seats, or they have smaller Lear style jets, luxury style jets that they make available uh, to members. And typically what happens is the uh, speaker, for CODELs at least, authorizes the travel, or if they're a minority leader, as Speaker Pelosi was for a time, they can authorize travel as well, and the military typically makes the planes available given the proper request from the proper official in Congress. But you would think they would only do that for serious missions abroad, but instead they go anywhere they want. They've got the gumption to ask for it, the military isn't going to say no. Indeed, one DOD official complained about the hidden costs associated with the speaker's last-minute changes and cancellations. We have folks prepping the jets and crews, driving in, not a short drive for some, cooking meals and pre-flighting the jets, etc. So that's what I tell you when I tell you about the abuse. That's the sort of abuse. So you, you ask for the plane and then you cancel it. And all these, all these men and women have been working to set it up. And for what? The documents include a discussion of House ethics rules and Defense Department policies as they apply to the Speaker's request for staff, spouses, and extended family to accompany her on military aircraft. In May 2008, for example, Pelosi requested that her husband join her on a CODEL into Iraq. The DOD explained to Pelosi that the agency has a written policy prohibiting spouses from joining CODELs. So that was another issue that popped up. Her, her spouses and her family, and you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi is a mother. Uh, she's a grandmother, and so she quite rightly wants to have her family with her at times when she travels back and forth. But we subsidize that. Now, in theory, there's payments that were supposed to be made uh, for uh, individuals who travel with the Speaker in cases like that, but the payments don't cover the cost of travel. It's a few hundred dollars, you know, compared to the thousands of dollars an hour it costs for the plane to run. Other documents. Documents that be, I'm going to go through this in detail because you won't hear about this in the media. And it provides important context for the waste, fraud, and abuse associated with congressional travel that is subsidized by military, precious military dollars. Documents obtained from the U.S. Army include correspondence from Speaker Pelosi's office, requesting an army escort and three military planes to transport Pelosi and other members of Congress to Cleveland for the funeral services of late Representative Stephanie Tubbs-Jones. Pelosi noted in her letter of August 22, 2008, that such a request, labeled Operation Tribute, was an exception to standard policy. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine any good reason, and I... I, I remember vaguely uh, Congressman Stubbs-Jones dying. But if the members of Congress wanted to go to her funeral, they could figure out a way to get there from D.C. and other places. Either they can take a bus, they can take commercial travel. Uh, the idea that we were using military planes to bring these members over there is such a waste in my view. Uh, and it happens, and it, that sort of thing happens a lot, by the way, uh, these military planes being used to bring members to other members who have passed away their funeral services. Um, the documents also detail correspondence from intermediaries for Speaker Pelosi 
issuing demands for certain aircraft and expressing outrage when requested military planes were not available. Now, intermediaries for Speaker Pelosi mean her staff. <laughs> I don't know why we wrote it like that. It is my understanding that there are no G5s available for the House during the Memorial Day recess. This is totally unacceptable. The Speaker will want to know where the planes are, wrote Kay King, Director of the House Office of Interparliamentary Affairs. In a separate email, when told a certain type of aircraft would not be available, King writes, This is not good news, and we will have some very disappointed folks, as well as a very upset Speaker. Talk about arrogance and abuse. Can you imagine being an Air Force official dealing with the Speaker's office on this? You've got limited resources. There are fleet of jets over there, but it's not an infinitely sized one. And there are other reasons to keep those jets available, usually to support the Commander-in-Chief when he travels. And they're shaking in their boots as they're being yelled at through email by Speaker Pelosi's staff demanding access to this luxury jet program. And this is a, this is a kicker. This one has always gotten me. It's 10, 10 years ago, but I, I, remember this great, I remember this, and you'll know why. During another email exchange, DOD staff advised K. King, again, Pelosi's front, that one Pelosi military aircraft request could not be met because of, quote, crew west requirements and offered to help secure commercial travel. I say commercial travel. King responded, We appreciate the efforts to help the CODEL fly commercially, but you know the problem that creates with spouses. If we can find another way to assist with military assets, we would like to do that. Now, what's the dirty little secret there? Uh, this is the line. You know the problem that creates with spouses. Spouses could go on the military planes on these international or national codels for free. But if they took commercial travel, they had to pay their own way. So they were trying to game the system in order to get the spouses free travel to go on this congressional delegation trip. So, and I haven't seen the reporting on this, and, I, and I, ha I have to look more into it, but, you know, you guys get the comment on this. Comment on this. Go ahead and Google. Figure out who else was going on this congressional delegation trip. Were spouses invited? You can bet if they were invited, they were going for free. Now, admittedly, they may not want to go to Afghanistan, but who knows? Maybe, it's, maybe they thought it was interesting. But, of course, they were going to Afghanistan through Brussels, which they didn't need a military plane to get to. But that's a whole other matter. So, um, you know, now back in 2007, this is why Pelosi got into the news on the military travel, because uh, Dennis Hastert uh, had uh, airplane military access as well. But he was much more conservative in how he treated this perk of office. Um, he re she requested allegedly a 42-seat Air Force carrier, to a 42-seat Air Force carrier, to ferry the Speaker and her staff back and forth between San Francisco, uh, and um, you know Hastert was happy with a 12-seater. 
So Miss Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, wanted a bigger plane. And, and this is the way that worked. And I remember the story uh, came out in 2007. This is almost immediately after she took control of the House of Representatives and became Speaker. The election in 2006, in which she was going to, quote, drain the swamp, she comes in 2007, uh, or takes power in 2007, and the Washington Times had a story about this kerfuffle because uh, she was, uh, she was uh, stepping on toes over at the Air Force with these demands for bigger planes. And so what happened is the media rushed to her defense and stamped the story out. But I remember quite specifically thinking, well, we're not going to let this drop. We're going to figure out what really went on. And that led to our Freedom Information Act request and lawsuits that uncovered the full truth about what was going on. So um, leave it to Judicial Watch to do all the work that the liberal media not only doesn't refuse to do, but either doesn't want to do or actively covers uh, things up by refusing to report on. And certainly Congress wasn't going to do anything. Uh, oh, this, is another, this is another fun detail. One Codell, this document we came up with um, later in 2010, one Codell traveling from D.C. through Tel Aviv to Baghdad to discuss matters of mutual concern with government leaders, including members of Congress and their spouses. It costs $17,000 per hour in aircraft alone. Purchases for the Codell include Johnny Walker Red Scotch, Grey Goose Vodka. vodka. Uh, as you might imagine, I'm not a heavy drinker, so uh, E&J Brandy. I've never had that. Bailey's Irish Cream. Maker's Mark Whiskey, uh, Caversier Cognac, Bacardi Light Rum, Jim Beam Whiskey, Beef Eater Gin, Dewar's Scotch, Bombay Sapphire Gin, Jack Daniels Whiskey, Corona Beer, and several bottles of wine. Now, I, I don't know about you. I, I, I travel. I hate traveling, but I do travel for Judicial Watch. The idea that I would get on a plane and start spending Judicial Watch money on alcohol like that I, I'd, I'd probably cut my arm off before that would happen. Yet this is the expectation on a CODEL to a war zone. Was Baghdad a war zone at the time? Yeah, I probably. That, that was the list. And we have all the receipts. So you can go online and look at these various documents that I'm talking about. According to a memo for the record, there was a CODEL that involved a stop in... Um, uh, let's see, in Israel, they could only bring kosher items to the hotel, which is understandable. But again, kosher alcohol for mixing beverages in the delegation room was purchased on the local economy, meaning once they got there, bourbon, whiskey, scotch, vodka, gin, triple sec, tequila, etc. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too old, but I don't remember drinking like that even when I was younger. My gosh. So, uh, and on top of, let's see what else we have here. We got a bunch of releases come out. Oh, this is another. This is another local Codel that I'll just leave you with. A January seventh, two thousand eleven, two thousand ten, congressional delegation to Detroit, Michigan, for the express purpose of reviewing the impact of congressional appropriations and policy in promoting innovation, technological, technological development, and job creation in the U.S. auto industry. 
It costs $24,000 in commercial travel. So the military didn't pick that up, but you picked it up. And ten grand in expenses. Oh, wait, the military did pick up part of it because they, we sent military escorts with them. So we had, we had senior Air Force officials escorting Congress to Detroit. My guess it was the auto show. I read this to mean the auto show, but maybe it was just more generalized meetings. So that's the Pelosi Congress and Codell's. And you can bet it continued during the Boehner Congress. Now, Boehner, John Boehner, the speaker, thanks to Judicial Watch, he said, I'm not using military planes. And I believe uh, Ryan, Speaker Ryan, confirmed that with us as well. They didn't use military planes, at least to travel back and forth to their... um, uh, home districts. Now, uh, there are codels that took place during the Republican-controlled Congress, which we've investigated, and I actually will have some more on that for you next week. Uh, but there was a codel for Mrs. Pelosi again while she was uh, in Congress that involved a trip to Italy, which I'll talk about next week as well. But it never really stopped. So the president is right to call attention to the wasteful use, of, uh, the wasteful codels. Um, I mean, we can argue whether or not members of Congress should be going to Afghanistan on, on taxpayer dollars, uh, what the value of it is. Uh, but we do have a government shutdown, and um, government shutdowns are useful not only because they save us money, uh, uh, but also because they highlight the fact that government is doing a lot of things it doesn't really need to do. And by calling attention to the Codells, at least we have a debate about the fact we have our military providing VIP luxury travel for our, our Congress. So uh, that's just uh, really interesting stuff, isn't it? And again, Judicial Watch has been in the front and center of this. And this is what I love about Judicial Watch, and it's why it's important to have Judicial Watch not only be here today, but be here tomorrow and the day after and the day after, because this this corruption in many ways never goes away or it may fade away, but if you're not vigilant, it pops back up. So I think a lot of people are going to be interested in what uh, Nancy Pelosi was doing during her first speakership and analyzing the debate over the president's cancellation of the Codell, the, uh, the Codell to Afghanistan. And... Um, and it's great that we're able to get these documents from uh, the Air Force, and, uh, and we're going to be asking more questions about this as well. Uh, but we can't get documents from Congress because Congress is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Congress passed a law making executive branch agencies, the president's agencies, subject to Freedom of Information Act requests. But we can't ask for documents of Congress. I guess we can, but there's no way of suing them if they don't give us the documents. So all of those sexual harassment claims, I know a lot of people are interested in that. We've asked for that from, I mean, from the Treasury, but they don't have the detail. Congress has the detail. And they're not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So these congressional delegations and what goes on on these trips and uh, what the real purpose of them are, uh, we can't figure that out based on a request to Congress. Thankfully, we were able to get these emails. Oh, you know what else happened with these emails that we were getting? The Air Force was sending them to members of Congress before they sent them to Judicial Watch as a heads up. By the way, we're suing for them, so they should have been sending them out to us immediately. But they were 
taking care of their uh, the guys who appropriate their money in Congress by giving them heads up on these emails because they knew they would be embarrassing to them. So uh, the other story that's uh, you know, there's a crisis after crisis, and this is the crisis of our generation. I'll say it once again: this is the crisis of our generation, which is the effort to overthrow the president of the United States that began with the spying and targeting of him illicitly during the Clinton campaign or the uh, 2016 elections, and which continued through the first part of the Trump administration through the Mueller special counsel. And I guess the Democrats are going to pick up that seditious baton and try to impeach him for no good reason. Now, the news that came out this week are details about the... the, um, the congressional interview, the House interviewed Bruce Orr, who was until recently the number four official at the Justice Department, and Bruce Orr was involved in talking to Christopher Steele repeatedly about his dossier that he was working on on behalf of Fusion GPS, who was paid by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. So this dossier, which had by its own admission, Fusion GPS said they worked with Russia Intel sources, had false information in there about Donald Trump and uh, his connections to Russia. And really nasty crap, too, pardon my language. Uh, and it was typical, uh, and it was, a, it was a typical political document designed to try to destroy the reputation of your political opponent. That's political opposition is. Except the FBI and the DOJ used it as a pretext to spy on President Trump without telling the FISA court details about its origin. So everyone was concerned about Bruce Orr because he was talking to Christopher Steele despite the fact that Steele had been uh, labeled persona non grata by the FBI as, a, as uncovered by Judicial Watch and that, and that uh, Bruce Orr's wife worked for Nellie, uh, Bruce, Weiss, what, Bruce Orr's wife, Nellie Orr, worked for Fusion GPS, so they had that conflict there. So Bruce Orr comes in and he tells Congress the following, and I'll summarize, so I haven't seen the testimony, I've seen excerpts of it. He said, in the summer of 2016, he told those who needed to know in the FBI and the DOJ, senior leadership, that Christopher Steele had the dossier, that he was desperately anti-Trump, it was connected to the Clinton people, and that his wife worked for Fusion GPS. All the key points about the dossier that needed to be uh, uh, disclosed, in my view, to the court. Now, the big lie has been out there is that Orr was doing this uh, communications with Steele without anyone else really knowing about it or much later in the game. No, what, what the point about this is, this was in the summer of 2016, which was several months before the first FISA warrant based on the dossier that we know about targeting Trump was issued by the court in October of 2016. You know, we had worked with Bruce Orr many years ago. I was even younger then. This was... Probably in the year 2000, 2001. So this is 18 years ago. I was 32. 
And uh, Bruce Orr was head and still is head of the Organized Crime Division. I don't know exact title of the Justice Department. And we had a client who had supported Hillary Clinton. His donations were not disclosed, it looks like. And um, from what I recall, uh, he had concerns that a business partner of his or someone he was involved in was an informant for the FBI, mobbed up, and he needed to tell the Justice Department about all of this. And Bruce Orr was one of our key points of contact. So I was in Brazil with Bruce Orr, and you know we communicated often about our, our client. And uh, those disclosures led to the prosecution of Hillary Clinton's campaign finance chair uh, for her Senate campaign. Never resulted in a conviction, but there was a trial in Los Angeles. It's a little known story. The Bruce Orr was involved in prosecuting Hillary Clinton's top campaign official. Finance official. Who knew, huh? Well, now the prosecution was not as aggressive as we would have liked. They didn't really, they didn't want to bring in Hillary Clinton, for instance. So, um, so it's not surprising that Bruce Orr disclosed all of this because it, it kind of fits with what I recall about him, not him not being someone you couldn't talk to. I, you know, I, I understand he's a deep stater. But everyone, you, you would have thought that Bruce Orr was the big problem. No, Bruce Orr wasn't the problem. And the people he was telling in the Justice Department about his conflict, he disclosed his conflict, and, his, um, and, and what the dossier was really about, the political nature of it. Guess who he told Andrew Weissman, who is now number two for Mueller? And another lawyer who's now an official prosecutor for Mueller. So Andrew Weissman, the number two deputy, the top deputy for Robert Mueller, is implicated in the dossier scandal. And why is it a scandal? Because I told you what, Mueller, uh, what, what uh, Orr told them. This is political. He said that, that Christopher Steele, this foreign national, former spy supposedly, was desperate not to see Donald Trump re-elected. Desperate. Yet they used this dossier like it was go- like it was like some scripture, and they and they learned this from more. You know what they told the court? This is what they told the court. Source number one, who is Steele, who now owns a foreign business financial intelligence firm, was approached by unidentif- by an identified U.S. person, who indicated to source one that a U.S.-based law firm had hired that's Perkins Coy, the Clinton DNC law firm, who who cut who disguised their payments to Fusion GPS, by the way, had hired the identified U.S. person to conduct research regarding candidate one's ties to Russia. The identified U.S. person and source number one have a long-standing business relationship. Now, I'm assuming the identified U.S. person is Glenn Simpson or Fusion GPS. The identified U.S. person hired source number one to conduct this research. The identified U.S. person never advised source one as to the motivation behind the research and the candidate one's ties to Russia. That is false, I guarantee you, and this we know is false. The FBI speculates that the identified U.S. person was likely looking for information that could be used to discredit candidate one's campaign. Wait, wait, wait. Speculates? No, the FBI was told that this was a Clinton dossier. Clinton campaign document, a DNC document. They don't have to speculate or guess. They were lying to the court. And they did it once, 
twice, three times, four times. Four applications. The initial application, three renewals, the third one signed by Rod Rosenstein. This is a further blow to the already low credibility of the FBI and the Justice Department. And it frankly shatters whatever credibility the Mueller operation has, given its involvement of Andrew Weissman and Mueller's reliance continuing on the dossier. What should be done next? Well, now the Democrats are talking impeachment again because of this uh, odd BuzzFeed story that alleges that President Trump, without any details, because there are no details in the story, told Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about his Russia dealings. I don't buy the story. But this is the scandal. That's why that story came out, by the way, I'm convinced, because they were so, um, they couldn't believe the Bruce Orr stuff came out. Now, Mueller, so, you know, the big debate is, as I've talked about before, is Mueller writing a report. Mueller, in my view, shouldn't write a report. We already have the corrupt dossier. We don't need Mueller's version of the Clinton dossier. This abuse has got to stop. And if the Justice Department can't, you know, is too institutionally protective of itself in terms of a deep state approach to shut Mueller down, the president should take direct action, either shut it down through executive action or through litigation. That's what I think ought to happen. It is not going to end. Because I'm convinced any report by Mueller is going to be an interim report. Now, I understand the other argument, which you know I, I can't ignore, and I want, to lay, I want to give it to you so you can think about it yourselves. The argument put out there by people like Attorney General Barr, he's not Attorney General, well, he actually was an Attorney General, so it's right to call him Attorney General, but he's likely to be confirmed is that, uh, well, you know, we got to let the Mueller job finish his job. That's the only way to solve this. You know, let him finish it and let the chips fall where they may, and we'll fight over what part of the report comes out. I don't think that's going to happen the way he suggests. I think this investigation is just going to continue world without end. They may issue a report. It will be an interim report, maybe. I, I'm just not convinced. And either way, I don't think government abuse should be allowed to continue because that's the easy thing to do. This is abuse of power, abuse of authority. The president is being victimized here. You're being victimized. We pay the president, we vote him into office so he can focus on doing the job a president of the United States should do. Not being harassed by Justice Department officials who hate his guts, who are using as a pretext this Clinton material to try to destroy him and spy on him and his team. And then the Democrats are going to try to impeach him? Are they going to add, they're going to impeach him based on documents that they paid for? Unbelievable. So we're going to stand against it. We've got dozens of lawsuits trying to expose. We expose these FISA warrant applications that show fraud on the FISA court and abuse of the FISA court. We expose that the FISA court held no hearings on spy warrants targeting the president of the United States team. We exposed that the Mueller, uh, the uh, Comey FBI was paying Christopher Steele at least 11 times in 2016. So while he's working for the Clinton DNC, he's getting money from the FBI. 
It was a joint operation. We exposed that Steele was cut off by the FBI because they didn't trust him because he was leaking to friendly media to try to destroy Trump. Getting a little heated here, but this is a serious constitutional crisis. We've got a border crisis, and we've got a crisis here in Washington, D.C. I'm sure there are other crises I could get into and get outraged about as well, but these are, this is serious. The crisis of our generation. And Judicial Watch is going to stand strong on behalf of the rule of law. And we're going to protect the presidency, the president, because it's a constitutional office that's under assault. And we think our republic needs to be protected. So that's why we talk the way we do about this issue, or at least I do. Certainly Congress is now going to be AWOL on all of this oversight. We know where the Justice Department stands on this, and the president, my recommendation to the president, in addition to what I said earlier, is release all the records. There's more in these FISA warrant applications that we can't get access to because they're classified. We just had to close the case. The case was dismissed without prejudice because we can't get classified information through FOIA. And it's got to be released as a result of a directive by the president or a change in heart of the administration agencies that are, are, have the documents. Justice Department is going to give us this because they know it's going to make them look bad and undermine the Mueller assault on President Trump. That's why the president needs to get the truth out. So we're going to keep on working. So, and we do it with your support. You can see we've got tremendous success. We expose, we expose Nancy Pelosi. We expose Hillary Clinton's misconduct. And we're expose, exposing this misconduct directed at the President of the United States by the FBI, the DOJ, these powerful government agencies that are out of control. But at least they have to answer the judicial watch in our FOIA litigation and answer for the materials that we're able to result, uh, release as a result. So thank you. It's been a great week, and I'll have more for you next week, and have a wonderful weekend. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.